When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Uh, you ready? Yeah, Brett Weinstein, are you ready? I am ready. It's been three, three long years. History could pivot in this hallway right now. If <laughs> History could, history could pivot in the direction of the values that you are standing here for. Yeah, resign. Could, what? Resign. <laughs> I don't know. They they seem long in one way, and uh, it seems like yesterday in another. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I'm still, like, face first in all the footage. So, um, for better or worse, like, I'm married to this event. Uh, I'm trying to wrap up that marriage, but... Uh, well, I appreciate still, like, that right you're right you're trying to wrap it up properly um, yeah it could easily have been left hanging and you haven't done that so anyway i'm no. i'm appreciative that you've been so diligent about it well uh, you know uh, there's some risks and some rewards for it but what so you say that it's still pretty close to you or, or it's the still event? pretty far well yeah. you know it's an odd uh it's, it's a philosophical question i guess but as i get older i've noticed the following thing which is that every event in the past simultaneously feels like it was longer ago than it actually was it was uh very recently and it was exactly the distance in the past that it it, it should be by the calendar and so in this case i have that same huh. sense um part of me does feel like it was yesterday um and then part of it feels like ancient history and then three years also seems about right well, what do you think's most immediate about it? And, and for anybody who's tuning in and doesn't know who either of us is, we're talking about the Evergreen State College in uh, the spring of 2017. Actually, on May 23rd of 2017, a series of protests were kicked off, beginning with Brett Weinstein's classroom. And, uh, and you were surrounded or confronted, let's say, by a bunch of protesters. And then there was a bunch of things that happened after that. But what's, what do you think is most immediate to you or significant that brings that that experience that keeps it close to you um that's a tough question you know the problem at some level for heather and for me is that a large fraction of our lives was wrapped up in evergreen and from our perspective that was mostly great because we had such incredible freedom to teach what we wanted to teach in the way we wanted to teach it uh that you know, we had a community of students who bounced back and forth between my programs and her programs and the ones we taught together, and it was very rewarding. We knew lots of great people and had a terrific time, and while we were doing that, there was this other aspect of the college that was on the march. We were aware of it, but I don't think we were... Uh, our concern was not at the appropriate level because it was so easy for us to surround ourselves with things that were interesting and thought-provoking and, uh, and rewarding. And then eventually when it decided to go after us, um, it became clear that what we were doing was 
worthwhile, but it it couldn't defend itself in that environment. Hmm. And you know, some this is this. You're making me think of a comment that I received on one of my Evergreen videos about why the protesters thought you were racist. And they say, this commenter wrote that, that you're always speaking as though you have authority, like you are presenting what you know in a certain tone of voice. And it seems like from this uh, commenter's perspective, watching all the footage of all the other workshops and all the other professors and the administrators, like there's a very obsequious tone or this very... Uh, kind of a, a bowing down to the authority of a certain group that you kind of lack. And that might be what is perceived as being racist, is that racism or anti-racism was kind of construed as sort of like this allyship that is completely obsequious to the will of this narrative that's going on. D does that ring true to you at all? Well, you know, one of the things that always seemed very strange about these claims about my supposed racism first of all they came from people who had never met me and so uh there, it was always suspect but it seems to me like any reasonable definition of that term would require that whatever it is that is alleged to be racist whether it's my tone or the content that that would have to be asymmetrical to the extent that my tone is my tone with anybody, irrespective of race, it would seem to imply the exact opposite. And so mm. uh, I, I can't, I'm not going to defend the tone or the approach that I use. I know they were very effective in the classroom with people of uh, many different races and backgrounds. And for people to tune in all of a sudden and decide that because what they are focused on is race, that the tone that I am using is therefore uh, in some way responsive to race is preposterous. And, uh, you know, the preposterousness starts there, but obviously it, it, mm. it knew no end in the evergreen context. One of the aspects of the series that I'm doing on uh, the complete evergreen story is using a lot of footage from the past and from the present that, that's happening outside of the Evergreen State College. I kind of cleverly spliced in some uh, footage of the communist revolution with uh, the pattern. And you can see even the, the posture of the, of the actors uh, matches up uh, pretty tremendously. But also I talk about uh, Trump and Clinton and that whole election and how that fed into uh, what was going on at Evergreen at that time. And I'm wondering, what do you think has changed in the cultural environment um, that that had facilitated and fueled what happened at Evergreen. How how has the conversation, the cultural war, the cultural tension shifted since then? And do you think that we've made progress in certain respects uh, with regards to what caused the Evergreen State College implosion? Have we made progress since the Evergreen meltdown? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have no doubt that we have. And unfortunately, Evergreen paid a terrible price for demonstrating where the road that many colleges were on ultimately would lead. So, you know, Evergreen became the cautionary tale. And I think, frankly, um, we've made a lot of progress because many things that could not be stated in public because the power to shout them down was too great, those things have now become not only discussable, but widely discussed. So we are having exactly the com conversation 
that the protesters who became rioters at Evergreen were trying to prevent from breaking out. Hmm. Uh, what, could you give a, something specific, some example of something that, that has changed with regards to the conversation? Like, Sure. There's this notion that um, when a person with a credible claim to have, um, have come from a history of oppression speaks about the present, that the obligation is simply to, to listen and to accept the truth of what they are saying about what they currently face without asking for evidence or without probing to see whether or not their analysis is robust. And what was unsayable was that that system cannot function that way. And the reason it cannot function that way is because that system is a beacon for bad actors who wish to abuse that privilege and use it to wield power over others. So if you set up the system, even if you're well-intentioned when you set up a system in which we simply accept what is said by people uh, that come from uh, a historically oppressed lineage, when you do that, then the worst people who happen to have that claim will rise to the top and wield the most power because they will be willing to use that that protection uh, to advance their uh, their own agenda, and that epistemological stranglehold is has been broken or at least loosened somewhat. Yeah, I think, frankly, most people are now aware of the uh, the problem. I mean, the Jesse Smollett uh, issue makes yep. it very clear where you know a story that people wished to embrace because it reflected their fears of some other group turned out not only to be uh, inaccurate, but was effectively cooked up as, you know, a publicity stunt, it appears. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, it demonized people wrongly. And we are now having that discussion in public and uh, Evergreen is central to it. Mm. And uh, what do you think would have happened if you stayed? If I had stayed at Evergreen? If, if there were the conditions, right, and maybe there was a couple of conditions that had to be met for that to happen, but what do you think would have... Have you run this thought experiment before? Like, what would have happened if he stayed? Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, we ran the thought experiment very directly because uh, yeah. we were in negotiations with the college and we were talking very directly about what would be necessary for us to stay, and the college made it very clear they didn't really want me to stay. And I think the reason for that is obvious, which is my nature is such that there's nothing, there's nothing they could have offered me that would have caused me to stop talking about the danger of what I saw. So either they were going to have to back down over this nonsense version of social justice, or they were going to have a constant problem with me and Heather. And um, in that light, the answer to the question, what would have happened if we stayed, is that the only yeah. way we could have stayed long term is if they had changed course, which they still haven't. Yeah. Uh, they, they've softened course. They, they still have a space reserved, even in the midst of the terrible crisis that they're facing now, which is steep decline in enrollment, needing to ask the legislature for more and more money to make up for that decline in enrollment. And then COVID comes through and basically liquidates the coffers uh, and they're staring at the abyss and they still give space for the uh, 
you know, uh, what are we going to do about the marginalized? And not to say that that's not a good uh, thing to do to, to lay out this uh, desire to help the uh, those who need help. Uh, but there's still I, I still sense some sort of tone of that that it was that has been changed since they were very brazen about it at let's say the canoe meeting when they it was on full display what they believed and what they wanted to happen and the authoritarianism that they wanted to use to back that up uh, it now seems kind of like they're still nodding along to that but it's not like a central concern because they can't actually afford that to be their central concern well i don't know i mean uh i've of course, watched them at a distance, you know, partly through your work and partly through what they release without your help. But uh, the um, the impression I have is that they are willing to sink the entire ship so as not to admit that they had things wrong, so as not to um, have to have an awkward conversation with George and... The fact is, unfortunately, the way they've uh, rigged his exit and then the COVID-19 crisis has given them, I don't want to call it plausible deniability because it's not plausible, but it has given them deniability in the sense that, you know, other colleges are going to fail as a result of COVID-19. And so their garbage story about... um, Evergreen was, you know, suffering an enrollment crisis before George ever arrived. And, you know, yes, the protests had an effect, but it wasn't really what's going on. That nonsense is now being um, uh, propped up by the fact that they have a second crisis, which, yes, they didn't cause. They, they're not responsible yeah. for COVID-19. But the fact is the ship was sinking. It was taking on water and they had no plan for bailing it. And therefore the fact that it is taking on water at a faster rate is not the reason it's going to sink. It may Mm -hmm. affect the moment it's going to sink, but not, it's Mm -hmm. not the reason. How do you, how do you differentiate between the, the kooky version of social justice and a valid version of social justice? And or let's just say the progressive project. How have you tried to salvage that? Because you've gone through uh, progressive progressivism gone wild, you know. And how do you salvage that? Because uh, you know it's not that frequent of a claim, but people do say in my comments, and and they're usually people without much. Uh, they don't even have a proper profile picture, but they say Brett Weinstein was just as culpable for the whole business. And, and you do, you do maintain your progressivism. You maintain uh, your commitment to a form of justice that has a social component to you, to it. How do you think that, that the Evergreen State College, what it's known for now uh, facilitates the salvaging of a true socially just, uh, you know, position or project oh i don't think evergreen has anything to do with fixing the concept of social justice it's done so much damage to the idea of justice in the first place that um the biggest favor it could do is to stay out of the conversation from (laughs) going forward um but from the point of view of social justice as an actual concept if we were to forget the garbage version that's being circulated by uh, people on the extremely naive nominal left mm. and replace it with something that actually made sense. Well, we could talk about um, 
features of the landscape that enable people from certain demographics to uh, more easily rise economically than people from other demographics or that allows them to more easily uh, gain political power. And Mm -hmm. those things are real. But to use them as an excuse for transferring power and wealth to uh, many people who don't have a a legitimate claim on historical oppression uh, or who simply want to use it to bypass the need to say things of value, for uh, for example, is preposterous. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think the problem is I don't like the framing that this is a question of um, fixing the concept of social justice. What happened is that the people who used that term took an honorable uh, program that was, in fact, addressing over time it was addressing the structural inequities that actually do exist, and they hijacked it for illegitimate purposes, for an authoritarian program that uh, turned the college on its head. And I don't really want responsibility for fixing their nonsense. In fact, what Heather and I were doing in the classroom was trying to uh, mm. explore the questions that underlie uh, issues of justice in a rigorous scientific way, and we were successful at it. So, I, I'm not I'm not fixing the hijackers program. I'm much more yeah. interested in going back to uh, the rational program that we saw unfold in the civil rights movement, for example, um, in early feminism, rather than uh, you know and late stage feminism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, let's just return mm-hmm. return to our roots on the left, and w- we'll be okay. But this utopian nonsense and this uh, um, yeah. uh, envy based program is just not. It's never going to lead anywhere good. There's something that you brought up demographics and there's demographic disparities. And it seems to be a feature or one of the bugs of a certain implementation of ideas from, let's say, leftist thought of thinking demographically that breaks down into another version of racism or another version of identity politic. How do how does thinking demographically, and I think you gave us a clue with regards to uh, the slow project, how does thinking demographically not degrade into just uh, like a reparation that's based on some sort of immutable characteristic or, or some sort of an, an, another version of racism, another version of discrimination? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think the problem is, we can't afford um, to allow the demographic concerns to drive, but they are necessary in order to figure out what's actually taking place. So let's say, let's talk about uh, uh, slavery and Jim Crow. Obviously, slavery is over and Jim Crow is dead, but the echoes of these things continue in a system that reinforces current distributions of power and well-being, right? So if you have a system that doesn't ask what your race is, but what it does is it says, how much do you have? And then it tends to continue that pattern going forward. 
then it will reproduce patterns that did arise during the slavery period and the Jim Crow period, even though the causal agent has been removed. And the problem is it's very easy for white society to um, look at the current structures, fail to find the racism that would generate it, and then not ask the question if the echo from the past is stronger than we think, even in the absence of the racism that once drove it. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, you have to have a demographic perspective in order to test the question of whether or not our system is reinforcing uh, racially unequal patterns of uh, well-being and, most importantly, opportunity. And, if you know, if you do test it, you will find out, actually, it is reinforcing it. And it may not be the color of your skin that's the driver, but if your zip code is correlated to the color of your skin and your zip code is suffering because of a historical pattern, then it amounts to the same thing for most people. Mm -hmm. And how how is... Uh, you mentioned, like, the, the slow progress... Or you said over time, like the, the, the civil rights era uh, had put in uh, to motion, uh, I guess, systemic, uh, you know, forces that over time might more or less be correcting that disparity. Is how do you how do you is that not the clue that people in the case of Evergreen with the students that they were trying to take all this systemic thinking and, and act on it right now? Like there was an urgency that was unbefitting of actual, actually solving the, the, big, uh, the big issues. But because that urgency was given a platform, it allowed for the breakdown of that systemic way of thinking, that demographic thinking into an immediate sort of discrimination based on these immutable characteristics. Well, you know, if I can go back three years, there was uh, one of the early interviews that I did as the protests were still very fresh. I think it might have been on Dave's, Dave, Dave Rubin's program. Um, I, I said, I'm actually, I believe progress is too slow on the issue of actual inequity. And so the frustration that we saw emerge in the protests is confusing because I actually think some of it is justified. But what they did is not justified, and the leaders of it created such a cartoonish, nonsensical version of their claim to, uh, to be rushing for equity that it made no sense. But if you take two things, people are frustrated. People who do come from populations with a history of real structural oppression, um, they are frustrated that the rate of progress seems to have slowed. I actually think that's right, although there are various reasons it would have slowed. One of them is just that in the quest to fix society, to make it fair, there's, uh, there are easy measures that have a big effect. And as time goes on, you've done the easy things, and the mm -hmm. things that are causing the echo are more difficult to put your finger on. They're harder to address. And so the rate of progress slows, and I can imagine... Uh, uh, that a certain amount of frustration is absolutely um, understandable. But that doesn't mean that you can turn what's driving this into some cartoon. I mean, just, yeah. you know, you were a student at Evergreen as I was a professor. We didn't know each other. But teleport yourself back four years ago on the Evergreen campus. The allegation that white supremacy was 
a common feature of the landscape and that every person of color on Evergreen's campus knew it because it was just everywhere. That's a total fabrication. And the only way that it was, in some sense, um, made anything other than laughable was to redefine white supremacy so extremely that, you know, the definition meant nothing and therefore okay, credibly, it's there. But, but anyway, it was a fabrication. And so you've got frustration, which is understandable. You've got bad actors. And those bad actors formulate a nonsense story that then captures that frustration and turns it into a weapon. And, it, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. The right way to do this is to analyze what's taking place dispassionately and then figure out what remedies actually work for that part of it that is real. That, and, mm -hmm. you know, again, that's not these people's program. That's the program that they overthrew. I can sense uh, in the th last three years that I've been uh, interacting with the Internet in a more or less public capacity, I can kind of sense that from the right side of the aisle, there's this conception of... of uh, not necessarily like pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but there's this stress on the agent rather than the system. And I wonder how do you negotiate that? If if society is putting these different programs in place, isn't it not up to the agent within society to kind of fill that gap? And and insofar as that that balance between the system and the agent isn't there, it really shows to me that that the Evergreen State College, the, what the protesters did was, um, or actually what the professors did was betray g giving the skills to the protesters to be self-determined uh, in their own agency, to, to build something with their life, to, to use college as a way to gain a skill to do something in the world. It seems like they were given this uh, this story about how they are oppressed that, that actually weakened them, weakened their agency um, by putting all the stress on the system. Yeah, so uh, you and I have been on parallel journeys, I guess, um, where we interact with people from both the left and right. And uh, it's very interesting to see close up what the blind spots are on each side. And there's a, um, a focus on the right, a focus that I actually think is mostly honorable on personal responsibility. But the right does not, in general, understand the limits of personal responsibility and that which it can address. And so anyway, to my friends on the right, I'm very frequently in the position of having to make this point, which is that, yes, personal responsibility is vital. But in order for it to have the full effect that one would want from it, it has to function in a system that is well-structured. And if the system is structured poorly, then... Uh, it's limited. And in effect, what ends up happening is, yeah, you may improve your life through personal responsibility, but it comes at some cost somewhere else to some other person who didn't deserve to suffer, that effectively a cruel system um, w is going to inflict some harm and you can get out of the way of that harm, but it doesn't prevent the harm from landing somewhere. So mm -hmm. um, my folks, my friends on the left seem to have the inverse blind spot. And their blind spot is very focused on collective well-being and the structure of the system to the point that they don't even see differences between individuals as having any role to play in success. And so, I mean, this is, this is a mind-numbing misunderstanding, <laughs> right? 
So, and obviously to anybody who's thought about the issue deeply, you'll find that both of these things have a role to play, that you absolutely want to make the system function well, um, but that personal responsibility is the key individual skill. And so the de-individuating that goes on on the left and the hyper-individuating that goes on on the right, neither one of these is correct. And uh, the delicate interplay is the place where the magic happens. It seems like there, there are these kind of ancient, more or less ancient, or actually very old, some of them are newer than others, uh, categories that help us plug into larger and larger systems. You have the category of the family, you have the category of the clan or neighborhood, and then eventually you get them to the nation. And then there's this category called humanity that uh, I don't know if we're capable of actually, uh, maybe some of us are capable of actually belonging to that category in mind and heart. Um, how, how do those serve as a bridge to uh, facilitate from the hyper-systemic way of thinking and the hyper-agent way of thinking? Uh, how, how, how do those things, are those useful in navigating how somebody uh, shifts blame and how, how we conceive of a system that reinforces the agent rather than weakens the agent or oppresses the agent? Um, I mean, I think ultimately they are necessary categories for us to understand. As you know, I'm a a fan, an advocate, um, and in some sense an inventor of the concept of lineage as a driving force in evolution. And, you know, these mm. lineages are battling each other, and that has a lot to say with about how we function. But I also think there's this other part of the puzzle, which is our system is so broken that it fails to educate people in a way that empowers them to be personally responsible, right? In some sense, uh, the system as it stands turns people into cogs, and that means that they are much more likely, at least in some uh, quadrants, to be um, unimpressed by the lesson of personal responsibility because they don't have the tools with which to turn it into something empowering. And so... I think the meltdown that we saw at Evergreen is in part the result of people who were being um, hobbled by the system, uh, deciding that the only thing there was was group advancement because the, the uh, alternative, which was that they could figure out how to move forward as individuals, was inconceivable with the tools they'd been handed. And so for my part, I would say, look, we have got to figure out how to repair the system that educates. I mean, it's really so okay. broken that um, it's not surprising that it is resulting in uh, paradoxical boiling over of uh, frustration. I, I just, I'm having a hard time conceiving of the system first. I, I, I'm better at conceiving of the culture first and then the system that, that kind of follows the lead of the culture. Are, are you, when you say system, are you, are you thinking of like policy and like institution or are you, are you thinking of culture too? Like, like a culture that, uh, that have certain sorts of core values that then cause you to engage with, let's say an academic institution in a way that, that you do fulfill and gain more power when you're going through it. I think I'm talking about something uh, more practical. If you were to take a walk through virtually any college campus and you were to peer in to all of the classrooms teaching all of the different topics, a large fraction of what you would find 
is, I think, of no demonstrable value. And even some of the things that nominally might be of value are taught in a way that I don't think they recognizably empower people. So anyway, the system is, to some large extent, a fiction where it is pretending to enable people. And... Um, by, by, by way of giving them certificates at the end. By way of giving, I mean, yeah, I hate to say this, you know, because I, I am a believer that the system could function well and it could really empower people. But when you look at your average college graduate and you ask, all right, what is it they picked up over the four or five years they spent? And after all of the money that they spent on these educations, what is it that they are capable of doing that they were not capable of doing on the way in, or even better, that they would not have been capable of doing uh, if they had spent those four years um, in some trade. And I think in many ways, in general, the answer is they are not well rewarded for the, the money and time that they spend on a college education. And that's, you know, that's not their fault. That's the fault of the system that is delivering a mm. feeble product at way too high a price. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not surprising that people who have been hobbled by a system of education are deaf to the issue of personal responsibility and over-focused on the issue of collective okay. well-being. Yeah. Do you think, and this is kind of a, two-pronged question, but do you think that new media, stuff that we're engaged in right now, has the capacity of simulating uh, that value? Uh, like like these podcasts that you do with your wife and uh, the, the lectures that you give? Or is that a stepping stone to something new? Yeah, but I think it's broader than that. You know, the, the thing about the new media that you and I seem to be involved in here um, is that it does look something like what takes place in a classroom, but because people uh, have, there's nothing that forces them to watch. It's not that we're doling out credit. It's not that they've paid to see it. There's nothing holding them there. So that forces us to deliver something that they actually want to participate in. Um, so the quality, you know, that could create a misleading thing, but I think in both yeah. your case and our case, um, it's creating high-quality discussions that are worth their time. Um, but there's lots of other stuff that goes on in this new media environment, too, that I find absolutely fascinating. So, for example, you know, there's almost nothing physical that you might want to learn to do that there isn't a video on YouTube to help you figure out how to do it. And, in, in fact, I'm, I'm very fond of this genre in which um, somebody shows you how to make something but there are no words in the video. You just watch them make it, and your brain has to work backwards and deduce why they're doing this this way. Well, mm. what's that part going to be? Um, so anyway, there's a lot of potential power in this. And, you know, if I, if I, um, I saw a video the other day of a, a guy who took stainless steel bolts and he turned them into a combination lock. Um, it was a very good video, very high-quality machining. Um, but it, uh, when I think about what he knows and what he's conveying to people who are learning to do machine work by just simply demonstrating how he's accomplishing 
certain goals. And then I compare it to a college class where people are sitting around um, talking about some abstraction. I'm pretty sure that most of the abstractions that people talk about in a college class do not make them capable of something new. Every so often a thought is powerful enough that it really enhances the mind. But mm -hmm. um, my experience uh, of watching students in college was that an awful lot of time gets wasted. Whereas uh, if you're a machinist and you're watching other machinists show you how to do what they know how to do, it is almost certain to be productive. Hmm. The other side of that, to go back to our original discussion, what do you think the media's role in making Evergreen Evergreen was? Like, how did how did new media enhance that protest, that that week of madness there, and then everything that followed? And uh, and do you have any criticism about the power that was uh, unleashed just by the the very fact that this stuff was recorded and then reproduced to millions upon millions of people? Uh, I think I want to turn the question around. If certain things had not gone just as they did, right? For example, um, I think it is fair to say that the role I played in the Evergreen meltdown was unique. That means if I hadn't been there, the role would not have been played. Mm. I think it is very likely that if that had been the case, the protests would have unfolded. They might have turned into riots or not. And the college, the coup that that set of protests began, would have succeeded without anyone being the wiser. And there would currently be a college called the Evergreen State College, which, which would have had a history of innovative teaching, which would now be functioning under an authoritarian regime in which the content of classrooms, email, all sorts of things was being policed by uh, people that I, you know, wouldn't trust to wash my dishes, right? Hmm. Um, I mean, seriously. So you don't have a high, you don't have a high estimation of these people. Look, in, order to, in order to participate in the stuff that, I mean, I'm not talking about the people who stood by. I have concerns about the people who stood by, but the people who actually advanced this ball, one of two things has to be true. They either have to be fools who don't understand the problem with it, or they have to be, in some sense, uncaring in order to allow it to unfold. And Evergreen was broken when we were there, but there was a lot of good that still took place. And for the part that didn't function to stage a coup against the part that did function, is um, it's a huge loss. But anyway, my, my original point was, if I hadn't played my role... I don't think the protest would have become known. I think in the absence of the protest becoming known, the bad faction that launched this thing would have simply succeeded in taking over the college and they would now be ruling it and everybody else would be uh, living in fear and you know unable to talk about it. And so not only my role, but then my role wouldn't have worked at all if there had not been an alternative media environment in which Joe Rogan and Dave Rubin and uh, my brother Eric Weinstein um, and Tucker Carlson, well, I guess that's not alternative, but if the um, 
alternative media environment had not existed, then the story would have been much easier to control from the point of mm. view of those who were trying to sell this false story of white supremacy at Evergreen or whatever it was. And yeah. so anyway, what role, what effect did it have? It had every effect. It, it totally changed the landscape of this uh, discussion because the coup was unable to succeed in an environment where there was somewhere to go other than NPR and the New York Times to talk about what was taking place. And so not only did that change Evergreen's trajectory, but it means that other colleges got a chance to have this discussed before they got there, right? They got to see how this unfolded and that it didn't result in some glorious utopia on the other end. It resulted in... Uh, a catastrophe for the college, which is incidentally what I warned my colleagues was going to happen if they uh, mm. tried to to go down this road or continue to go down this road. Mm. So anyway, it changed everything. And uh, your work also, I will say, um, has changed everything because the um, meticulous documentation and the presentation of it in something other than an academic form mm. means that things that were going to be very difficult to find themselves lodged in history have now been lodged correctly so that hmm. anybody who wants to can evaluate what took place at Evergreen because, uh, you know, you found all kinds of stuff and put it into the world in a form where it's there. And, you know, I think it's also wonderful that you've done it in a form where it has the, I think, correct interpretation placed on it. You know, the juxtaposition hmm. of uh, the Maoists uh, with the the rioters at Evergreen, that's a perfectly fair comparison. It's not precise, but it yeah. is the closest comparison I've seen. Mm -hmm. What are the trade offs from going? Uh, what are the trade offs in going from teaching at Evergreen to speaking to a YouTube audience? And uh, would you like to go back to a classroom at some point, or do you think that this is a this, this is where you're at. And this is, well, I don't want to go back to a classroom because there's almost no classroom that would be as rewarding as the one that, mm. um, Heather and I metaphorically had at Evergreen. Uh, so the reason for that is because Evergreen's unusual level of freedom for faculty meant that we were able to paint on a blank canvas and both of us in our own ways. And we, we did it differently from each other, but we pushed the limits of what was possible in the classroom and watching uh, the students respond to the teaching environment and watching them um, hmm. become uh, wiser, deeper, uh, smarter, more capable as a result of an environment that actually gave them really good feedback about what they were doing and, you know, the gratitude that we got from students who really appreciated an environment where they were taken seriously as human beings, that was incredibly rewarding. I don't think that would be something we could recreate in a classroom where you're earning four credits at a time in some subject that an administrator has decided you need to teach. So no, I'm not looking for a return to a college in a classroom at any costs. That said, mm -hmm. the YouTube environment is not really a great substitute. It's very interesting, and it has other uh, advantages to it. But um, but it, if I compare them one to one, it's missing a lot of what was in that uh, environment and 
um, and I wish we had it. But the other thing about the uh, the evergreen teaching environment is that we spend a lot of time in the field, and um, those field experiences that simply can't be done on YouTube. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so anyway, there's still a need for something. Yeah. But so yeah, the, going from students to an audience. Like students, I guess, to fans and fans and haters, too. So people are always writing your rate my professor with everything that you say now. And you have to put up with the stream of uh, responses. <laughs> yes, it's kind of like <laughs> it's it's living rate my professor with a bunch of strangers. Um, yeah. what, what are some of the questions that you're asking now that but that you and Heather, like with, within your, your proper domain of evolutionary uh, biology or, or even, I guess, evolutionary psychology now that you're interfacing with so many people, what are some of the most pressing questions uh, that are kind of keeping you up at night or turning your wheels in the morning? Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff. And, you know, that, that part of uh, our lives hasn't changed so much because it was just ever present in the teaching context as well. But I suppose I'm growing more and more focused on issues of lineage as they relate to human beings, and in particular, um, the pattern of human progress as it really is versus what we think it is based on um, the distortion of history. Hmm. Um, So anyway, I'm uh, at the moment watching a period in many of the sciences in which there appears to be no meaningful progress. And at the same time, there is um, a kind of mythology evolving about the progress of the present. So if you look back on sciences, there are periods that are very productive in any given science, and there are periods that are quiet and nothing much happens. But nobody lives in a period in which they would say of their own science, nothing much is happening, right? Everybody thinks they're living in a vibrant era. So how does that work? How does it work that when things are not progressing, people tell themselves exactly the opposite? And uh, in any case, uh, it's, a very, it's a very interesting puzzle that goes some unexpected places. Where, where, what's some of the solutions to that? Or what are some of the, uh, in rethinking how progress is happening, how would that unlock more progress? Like, what are some of the paradigm shifts or gestalts of stuckedness that we need to get through? Well, I think uh, what I'm beginning to realize is that people, um, when your field is stuck, people begin to attack the philosophy of science that allows you to tell whether progress is being made. In other words, Hmm. people manufacture a reason to reject the standards that would tell you whether you were stuck or not stuck. And I think we're seeing this in many different places. We're seeing it um, with all kinds of nonsense ideas that have extra currency in the modern environment that are being dressed up as the product of science when, in fact, they are almost the substitute for it. Hmm. And do you think that there's a kind of a like a core principle that would uh, that would kind of solve that, like like a kind of a internalized uh, principle or value or valuation that that can kind of change the way that things are happening now? Yeah. Uh, And I, you know, oddly, it brings us back to the question about 
evergreen because it's a very parallel situation where you have something unproductive staging a coup against the productive something. Hmm. Um, but there's really a question, which is, are you more capable than you were before X happened? If a explanation for some physical observation does not make you more capable, then it doesn't have any value, right? It isn't progress, no matter how cool it may sound, right? So let's take, for example, the, uh, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, the idea that there are effectively an indefinitely large number of universes and that they are in some sense spawned by every event that could end two different ways. In fact, it does end both ways and you're just on a trajectory that sees one end and not the other. Um, that's a very cool idea. It doesn't predict anything about the universe that we don't already know. And therefore, it's, um, it's just storytelling. Yeah. But at the moment, you will see that storytelling dressed up as if it is the product of hard science. But it's not that it predicts something. It hasn't been tested. Mm. It doesn't do anything that we didn't already know. It just claims to explain it in a way that we cannot evaluate. Okay. And then that, how would you, how do you go back and evaluate that story as something cool, but not capable? Like what, what, what's some feature of that interpretation that, that tells you the difference? So this is, yeah, this is, this is why I say this is parallel to the evergreen story. It's not like it's my job to tell you how we would know if that story was right. It is the job of those who advance that story to tell us what it predicts that we don't already know to be true. And if they tell us, then we can go check. Um, if they don't tell us, then the point is, well, I don't understand why you're dressing that up as science, because it's really closer to mythology or poetry or something like that. Hmm. So when you talk about capability, you're talking about prediction, a predictive capacity of a theory. Yeah, we would say explanatory power. Either a, a new, it, it's not a theory until it has withstood rigorous test. And um, in the absence of that, it could be a hypothesis, but it isn't one unless it tells us how we're going to figure out if it's false. Until that mm -hmm. point, it's just an exp it's just a description. Mm-hmm. In in the uh, kind of the the background radiation of Evergreen led to this IDW thing. Uh, you were you were you were a key component because you you traveled like a meteor through Rogan and Rubin and your brothers uh, all their trajectories, and you kind of highlight and and Sam Harris too, and um, and then and then Barry Weiss comes together. Uh, she writes that article about a year. Later, it was in 2018, if I recall correctly, the, the intellectual dark web, uh, and Jordan Peterson was there too. Uh, you're connected with all those guys, and uh, things have changed since then, and that has sparked uh, conversations within conversations within conversations. And I'm wondering, like, like if you think about it as a map of all these different conversations happening, I think Verveke, John Verveke, I don't know if you know of him, but he's doing a lot of conversations with Jordan Greenhall about the meaning crisis, and they're uh, kind of wrestling with cognitive uh, aspects of the religious and and what drives the culture and how that puts together uh it seems like you're doing something else where, where do you put yourself in the map or what part what kind of conversation are you uh kind of uh forwarding uh in in your public life yeah it's a good question and i feel like i know the answer but i don't know how i'm going to describe it it is definitely not in uh it is not 
a thought of mine that I should be duplicating what other other members of the so-called IDW are doing. I do feel like I have a role to play in uh, formulating a piece of the conversation that we are all apparently having. And um, in some sense, I mean, maybe this is it. I have argued that we must uh, retool civilization so that it functions well, but that we cannot blueprint the change that anybody who tells you they know what we're supposed to do is not understanding the difficulty what we must Mm -hmm. do is we must navigate there which is to say figure out what direction the solution lies and how we are going to evaluate our progress or whether we've lost the way Um, and then we have to navigate there so in some sense the point is it's a process of discovery rather than a plan and uh I think exploring the trajectory is really probably the most useful thing I can contribute. What What is, um, like, when you're saying that, like, the first thing I thought, like, how would you do that? You would probably do that through conversation, uh, first and foremost. But is there, like, field research that that would happen into when you talk about retooling society? How do you, how do we test ideas, especially in an environment right now where we're, we have a lot of free time, and at the same time, we're we're on the brink of possible economic collapse. You know, uh, how, where where are these ideas tested, and where they become most uh, you know alive for you? Well, um, yeah, we're we're about to end up in the weeds here, but um, yeah, the issue is we humans are built specially, and we have a capacity that other creatures don't have, which is that we can plug our minds into each other and we can exchange abstract ideas and we can hold each other's feet to the fire um, with respect to the quality of those ideas. So what you're calling discussion to me is a process that is explanatory of human well-being. Um, So I believe we are basically rebooting a part of our uh, our toolkit that we have engaged many times in the historical past, but um, that is not in recent times has been sidelined by our success, that our success has kept the part of us that uh, pools cognitive resources and figures out a, a, you know, bootstraps a new way of being. Well, it hasn't had to do that recently because the way of being that our uh, ancestors discovered has been so successful up till the point that we're now seeing uh, the hazard it's created. I, you made me think of that another key moment, like an iconic moment of the Evergreen story when you say you're not interested in debate, you're only interested in dialectic, where I, you tell me what you think and I'll tell you what, yep. what I think. And then we, we argue like that. That one moment speaks so much to what you're doing now, where you're engaged in the opposite of debate in a, in a way like like it seems like maybe there was some sort of culture of, I guess, statement or that Facebook culture. The way that the the way that the students were acting in that moment was a certain form of engaging with the truth where, the, you know, maybe truth isn't the right word, but they're trying to engage with truth where they're going to tell you what is right and what is wrong. Uh, and you're going at it from a completely different direction. Do you think that there's a parallel there between uh, getting back into a, a dialectic rather than a debate? Oh, yeah. And in fact, uh, there's an, an ebb and flow process that has characterized the 
entire period for for Heather and me since since the Evergreen meltdown, uh, in which we make progress earning the trust of a over time larger and more diverse audience, and then there's this thing where you say something that causes that audience to lose their sense that you're uh, trustworthy and suddenly there's a backlash and then it takes time to regain it. And then there's another one of these things. And so anyway, my point would be the way the adult conversation really works. There's a whole, once you've established that you're a good faith actor and that you, you belong in the conversation for a reason, there has to be a whole hell of a lot of tolerance for you to say things that sound wrong or backward or whatever um, in order to be able to make progress. If everybody's on a hair trigger waiting for somebody on the other side to say something that doesn't fit with their worldview, then the conversation is just constantly in this low state of having broken down. In order to build a conversation that's more capable, you have to uh, give people room. And anyway, I think we are collectively learning this, that, you know, my audience, your audience, the audience of the other IDW members, these audiences are getting used to the fact that there are rewards that come to you if you sideline your hair trigger instincts. And, you know, we all forget sometimes. We all literally get triggered, right? There are yeah. parts of our nervous system that just fire when we feel threatened by something. Um, yeah. But having learned that you know, uh, five minutes or 30 seconds isn't enough for somebody to make a point sometimes. And that, you know, two hours of discussion isn't all productive, but it may be necessary to have that kind of room in order to get somewhere useful. And that, you know, having, ha having somebody to dialogue with who isn't from your particular political perspective actually enhances what you understand rather than challenges your, you know, deepest notions or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, it won't cause a crisis every time. Right. You get so tolerant to that. The, the better you get at, at uh, calming those parts of your nervous system that want to react instantaneously, the richer the conversation you end up involved in is. Hmm. And I think we're bringing a lot of people along in that process. Yeah, it, that sounds like a very apt metaphor for you, you brought up earlier about something that makes human beings unique. And maybe maybe you wouldn't agree with this, but it seems that there's some space between the instinct, the, the reaction. There's some space there to consider things or there's a there's in that space. There's more of a view to, to consider things from more more directions, uh, positively, negatively and so on. Yep, absolutely. Do um, do you feel like uh, closing up here? Did you have a? We can. I I certainly envisioned that we were going to have a great deal more fun than we had in this conversation. Oh, it all ended up so. Serious. This wasn't fun for you. Well, no, oh. it was. It was. It was fun-ish. But you know, I, <laughs> um, given uh, that you know we're closing in tomorrow on the anniversary of um, the peak of absurdity in uh, my life, and I would imagine yours, it seems like we should be laughing more yeah well i mean i i i spent a year wearing funny hats just to kind of remind me of of uh, how foolish this content was but it moved on to more tamer climbs yeah um it's 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 interesting though because 
in order to have fun with that material, it's hard to like carve out a place where I'm just not mock, not just mocking those people, like like laughing in such a way that it gives us freedom from the pain of that event and pain being like either cringe or like the emotional damage that was done or whatever, you know, but how do you have fun with material that's so toxic and absurd as that? Well, I think you've actually, I think you've done a great job of figuring out an answer to that question. And I don't think that question has an easy answer, but I've watched what you've done over the course of these years. And um, I think, I think you've done it. You've figured out, I don't think Hmm. you pull any punches. You know, when something is absurd, you, you don't hesitate to give the interpretation that somebody needs to give voice to. But I also feel that you've been compassionate Hmm. and decent and had a sense of humor about it. So anyway, uh, one of the great ironies, I think, maybe the irony of this conversation is uh, Evergreen was a special place. And um, we are now on the outside of it, forced to talk about what it has become mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, because this insanity took over. Yeah. So that's... Uh, well, I mean, we're products of it in a way. I mean, yeah. maybe... You know, in a way, I mean, it's it's essential to our origin stories in, in this manifestation and this part of our lives. You as a, are you still going by as professor in exile? Uh, it's still in my Twitter profile. I don't invoke it myself, but I guess I haven't taken yeah. it down either. Or do you do you feel that way? Like, is there an exile? Because it seems like you stepped out of a small bubble, and it seems like you're not long. It seems like you have a community now. Do you, do you feel that way? Um, I mean, I definitely have a community, and in fact, uh, it's a great community. I don't, I don't regret um, the effect that this event had on my life. I can't regret it, but um, I'm very sad for the college. Mm. Uh, I guess, you know, here's the thing. I think you and I both thought the college was going to fail faster, um, given what it was uh, engaged in. And, you know. Bridges is tenacious, man. I mean, he just, he hangs in there. He just hangs in there. The dude is tenacious like a toe fungus, you know? (laughs) All right. Um, He's there, okay? (laughs) Yeah, he he won't go away. Um, But The collapse is slower than than we expected. I I don't know. Look, I I was betting that he was going to be fired because it was the obvious right thing to do was to get rid yeah, of him yeah. in order to announce to the world that the college had, had taken a new path and all of that. And the fact that the place is going to fail and that really it's going to fail because it was not ready to admit that it had made a mistake in hiring George is such, hmm. it's a mind boggling fact to me. Um, hmm. But Anyway, maybe I will uh, I will take down Professor in Exile at the point that um, I don't know the college fails or uh, George <laughs> is gone. I mean, oh, what a crazy what well. A crazy situation. The, 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 allow me to be philosophical, or, or don't allow me. But I'm going to ask you a philosophical question. Yeah. How do, how are we allowed to make mistakes, or how do you as a as a curious being with an opinion, thread that, thread that needle between uh, confidence and overconfidence, or, or being able to uh, correct yourself, being able to m- m- make a mistake. Yeah. 
I mean, how do you fail gracefully? How do how how do we do that? What is your advice? Okay, I don't want to make it sound easier than it is, but I do think, in some sense, um, the part of it that's difficult is not describing it. The part of it that's difficult is that there is an emotional barb, but the way you do it is you learn on the front end, you work very hard to figure out what's correct so that the point you give something voice, you're not likely to be wrong, but when you're wrong, you get to the right side of it as quickly as possible. As painful as it is to admit I had this wrong, when you find yourself there, you as quickly as possible own up to it and do so completely, right? That thing, you know, here's the, here's the difficult part of it. If you say, well, I guess I can always be wrong and then just admit it and that has no cost. Well, if you're having to do that all the time, it is going to have a cost. People are going to stop listening to what you say because you're wrong so frequently, right? So you want to have to do it as rarely as, as you can. <laughs> yeah. But when you do it and people see you do it well, it um, increases their trust in you because they know that it's not that you're uh, – lying in order to protect the fact that you were incorrect about something and that you know that and that they're fools to go along with you. They know that you are speaking what you still believe to be the truth and that at the point that that changes, you'll alert them. So mm -hmm. I think that's how you do it. And the, uh, I guess I would say among the things that should make you um, most skeptical of someone is an apparent inability to admit that they were wrong. And I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, George in particular has, he's done, his only move is to double down. That's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. He doubles mm -hmm. down no matter how big the error, he doubles down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with uh, those people who make it a hobby to accuse you of being wrong uh, every two or three days? There's a couple people, um, but. <laughs> um, yeah, well. You know, I mean, A, first of all, I will tell you, one of the things that's very rewarding about uh, the trajectory I'm on is that because my story um, caught people's attention and many people, I don't know, identified with me or admired what I did, um, there are a lot of people out there who will defend me. And many of them are paying attention very carefully to what Heather and I are putting into the world and so they defend from a position of understanding and knowledge. So they're effective. And mm -hmm. anyway, it, if you try to figure out how to make the world better, defending people who are honorable and need defense so that they don't have to do it themselves is a big key. Hmm. And so to the extent that there are other people out there who um, are willing to take up that role, uh, it makes... Uh, greatly reduces the worries in my life and reduces the amount to which I take the um, reactionary detractors seriously uh, to a great extent. Hmm. Um, sometimes when somebody's being a total numbskull, uh, you know, they'll usually come at you again and again and again, and you can ignore them for a while. And then there's some point at which you can um, amplify their numbskullness <laughs> and watch people recognize it, you know, the uh, number mm. of people who will retweet or like a, a particularly delightful error on their part is mm. um, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. is large. And anyway, so um, I don't know. Punishing bullies can be fun. I, I there's there's a little thing that you said about coming to the defense of people that you trust, and I wonder if I I feel like. A, over the last three years since Evergreen, like we, we reached a nadir of public trust. And I think that we're not through that, but maybe because I've been interacting with people in a trustworthy manner, or I've been gravitating towards trustworthy relationships, I don't feel like our society's on the edge of collapse um, as much as I did when I was really involved in that culture war post-Evergreen. Um, do you think that we're on that trajectory of becoming more trustworthy or trustable within our culture? And if not, what are th- and if or if not, what are some of the ways that we can fac- facilitate more public trust, more inter-individual uh, trust? Well, I mean, I think this is tied up in some of the things we've already talked about. Um, there is an alternative network of people who are not. Uh, obsessed with clickbait or uh, selling advertisements or whatever. And it is having better conversations across a wider swath than anybody else. And people are recognizing that tuning into that thing requires certain things of you. It requires Mm -hmm. you to, you know, to get rid of the hair trigger. But having done so, it's more rewarding and it does leave you more hopeful. So the question is, what is the maximum number of people that we could actually bring into that circle? So that they, instead of um, seeing the world as a political game, that people mm. started seeing the world as potentially, you know, instead of zero sum, positive sum, where by not attacking each other and by attempting to figure out what the value and what people who disagree with you are saying might be, that we actually all come out ahead. And to be honest, three years post Evergreen, I'm a little surprised at how well we're doing. Right. It's mm. still very rough, but I, I'm surprised at how much progress we've made. Do you think that um, do you think that current events uh, are testing that or will test that with the economic situation and with the virus uh, situation? Will it make it necessary to well, be trustworthy? I'm seeing a pattern I've seen many times on many different topics, which is initially the unusualness of the predicament is creating higher quality conversations because people are still, they don't know what their position is. They don't, they don't have a position yet. Right. And so for, Hmm. I don't know, six weeks, I think we were having higher quality conversations and now I'm watching politics destroy it. And the conversation is collapsing back into the not very capable, highly politicized thing that, uh, governs most of our lives. But again, the question is, how many people will have seen something different and registered that it was better and be therefore interested in returning to that more capable, higher quality conversation to the extent that they have the opportunity. That's interesting. I wonder if there's a trajectory of nuance or different, different forms of nuance. And there's a nuance that is enabled by novelty because you don't know. Um, But something creeps in like conviction or knowledge or false knowledge creeps in and then kills the nuance because you no longer have to be in that hesitant state of unknowing, which is really uncomfortable for most of us, if not all of us. Yeah, I mean, I I have a different relationship with that state. Um, You know, it it is often because you know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, because uh, the not knowing 
is the precursor to knowing something, sometimes something that nobody else knows. And so anyway, mm. uh, you have to cultivate a kind of taste for certain things that are um, at first pass distasteful in order to get to the rewards that are behind them. And often those rewards that are behind them are um, the greatest mm. rewards. So, for example, uh, you know, failure, not knowing, these are states that precede the discovery of capacity that other people don't have or the discovery of knowledge that is uh, brand new. And those things are the most uh, wonderful things you can, you can find. So um, being, you know, don't get discouraged when you, you know, you hit the paradox. The paradox tells you, oh, there's something here to find out. How do you maintain um, with within with regards to I guess the COVID conversation that you were talking about, like where it was novel, so there was a lot of nuance there. How do how do you maintain that uh, unknowing when it becomes dull, when the conversation becomes dull, and we're just treading water, or like it just keeps on going on and on and on? How do you? I guess I guess it goes back. It feels like it goes back to that question of when we interviewed you for your channel about the hypothesis and you can't really teach a student how to make a good hypothesis or you, you, it, it's a knack. It's a, this uh, internal signal or something like that. But, and maybe this is a going into the weeds question, but how do you keep a, you know, th that engagement alive? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think in my case, the technique involves, I think people are very impatient uh, intellectually. And what that means is as soon as they know that there's a question, they're desperate to figure out what the answer is so that they can make that, un that uncomfortable sense of there's a question I don't know the answer to go away. But the problem is you tend to come up with an answer uh, whose primary purpose is to make the question go away rather than um, to actually explain anything. So people, they leap to answers that are either too simplistic or not even right. And if instead of that, what you do is you have a, a large number of back burners where you can take questions you don't know the answer to and put them there just to simmer very low, then at the point that the thing that tells you what the answer might be comes across your desk, um, the question is still open. And therefore, suddenly, you have the final ingredient. Whereas if you had artificially settled the question in order to not have the uncomfortable feeling of not knowing, then when the answer actually was something you could now formulate, you wouldn't know that there was still a question to be answered. And so anyway, I would advocate figure out how to take a question that you've pushed as far as you can push it without getting to an answer. And instead of closing it down, file it in an open form so you can come back to it when you're ready. And, hmm. you know, I guess the point is it's, it, you're less likely to get bored because you've got, you know, dozens of questions that can use a little revisit at any point that things are boring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, what about in the face of, uh, you know, a worldwide disaster, though, when, when answers are so you just need to make a decision. It's not about it questioning endlessly or I guess judging what people did wrongly or rightly. It's like, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? Well, I mean, you know, it's very difficult to watch the world wrestle with uh, the COVID-19 crisis because it, you know, it has several different 
modes, all of which result in one failure or another. And um, I'm frustrated by the fact that the correct conversation doesn't seem to be breaking out anywhere. Hmm. Um, but figuring out what the content of the correct conversation would be should the opportunity arise is fascinating. And, you know, the, the YouTube thing is allowing us to explore that yeah. proper conversation in a place where actually it has some audience. It's not enough audience to, to change what the world is up to, but it is enough audience to get feedback and to figure out, you know, what you've got right, what you might not have seen. And uh, anyway, it's rewarding. It sounds like a, like a crowdsourced think tank, almost, in a way. Well, this goes back to the capacity that I was suggesting human beings have, this ability to plug our minds into each other in order to solve puzzles that we could not solve uh, alone. And so it's a new version of that very old pattern. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, with plenty of wood paneling. Well, <laughs> see, the thing is, the way we, we used to do this, the way our ancestor did it, was around a fire, around a campfire. And, uh, you know, here we have things that glow and (laughs) got wood. It's not exactly a campfire, but uh, it'll do. Everybody's got their lithium-ion batteries uh, burning in their palm where they're watching you, you know. Right, exactly. Simulating light and heat and sound, just like we always have been. Like a modern hot potato. Ouch. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Was there anything else we should cover? Well, um, I don't know when this video is going to go up. Um, well, tomorrow you're doing your live stream. And maybe uh, if I can get the files tonight, then I can release it at the end of your live stream or okay. something like that. Yeah, I was going to plug the live stream. But uh, if it's going to come out after, there's very little point in doing that. So, you know, uh, people could certainly... People can certainly come find us at the Dark Horse Podcast, uh, and our live streams have been Tuesday and Saturday. Um, Regularly. Yeah. Like two hours, three hours? You guys just go uh, for it? It's um, an hour of discussion that we uh, plan. It's loosely planned, so there's lots of uh surprising stuff even to us but we plan out roughly what topics we want to talk about and then there's an hour of questions that come across super chat which we do our best to answer as many as possible and there have been some really good ones hmm. that's excellent are you guys uh are you able to talk about any other projects or products in the work in the works other than merch maybe a book or something like that or like yep. a, a duet like a vinyl of you guys like <laughs> chirping with the with the birds or something uh there's no by vinyl you're talking about kink <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't gonna go there man <laughs> yep uh i wasn't either um yeah we have a book uh, that we are working on which will be out next year called the hunter gatherer's guide to the 21st century about the mismatch between what we are adapted for and the world we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Um, We had many speaking engagements planned, all of which got canceled in the aftermath of the pandemic. Um, But anyway, I don't know. Uh, Come check out the podcast and you'll find out more about what we're up to. And maybe eventually you'll have some t-shirts and coffee mugs to, to schlep. Apparently it's hard to get good quality coffee mugs. Oh, really? That's what I'm told. Really? They don't just magically appear from some factory that prints them? Oh, I think they do. But apparently the ones that you can get on demand are uh, not so nice, I'm told. 
You yeah. want some handmade ancient clays with little beads of water trapped in them or something like that. Artisanal coffee Artisanal. mugs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me, Brett Weinstein. And thanks for this last three years. Our friendship's been one of the highlights that has come to me from, uh, from what's happened to both of us. It's been, you've been one of my greatest post evergreen professors <laughs> yeah i must say i'm uh, very pleased it's so funny that we didn't know each other uh, while we were both at evergreen but um i've been very pleased to be your friend and for that to develop and uh also it's delightful to see a student from evergreen who really um you know lives out what the college was capable of and it it annoys me no end that hmm. they are angry at you rather than proud of you. They should be proud of you. Well, eventually I'm going to, I'm going to print up the complete evergreen uh, story as a box set and deliver it to the people who facilitated that whole disaster. And totally. And they'll have that for their wall or the trash. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> Excellent.